Hello, I'm Jane Daly and this is my podcast for people who know. As a thought leader and work-life activist, I am curious about people who are accelerating their work and life. And whilst finding their own balance, they have also found time to inspire others to do the same. My interest in Dr. Hannah Gore started when I was doing some work around women in learning. Hannah has been talking about the role of women in the L&D industry for a long time. And she's also been championing the change and transformation by disrupting the norm in L&D. And I've been fascinated by the work she's been doing. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Hi Jane, hi everyone. Great to actually talk to you on air. You and I have been talking um, and getting to know each other over the past few weeks and exploring lots of themes. And it's delighted to share some of the stuff that we've been talking about with the audience today because um, you've been doing some really interesting things for a long time. But in particular, um, I want to focus on learning experience because for you, you're a consultant in that area. I know it's a wide topic, but for you, that's how you term yourself as a learning experience consultant. Tell us why learning experience is really important to you. Yeah, it is It is one of those really wide blanket job titles. And I'm not normally a fan of job titles, but I do have to give myself some form of a titling. To me, learning experience goes across the board. It can be anything from a platform or a website design, a course or a content design, the data analysis, uh, the gathering of user feedback, through to working with different members of staff in how to develop learning content. So to me, learner experience basically covers all of L&D and over the 20 years that I've been working in L&D, um, I've pretty much done almost any job in L&D going from face-to-face -to, -face to online to blended to creating content, creating platforms, data analysis. So I've kind of got this end-to-end -end experience and to me learner experience hits every single point during that journey. So that's how I peg myself really. It's the best way I can explain it. No it's great Hannah and I, um, I want to invite you to come into um, the people who know Time Machine with me. Are you up for that? I'm up for that, <laughs> if it gets me outdoors. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, I want us to um, really look at the past, present and future. So I'm going to set the clock for you and me. So we're going to buckle up and we're going to take that time machine um, as time travellers back until um, to 2012, which Hi. was a really interesting time for you. I just want to set the scene for our audience because, um, you know, particularly in London, it was an incredible year. It was the 2012 London Olympics. Mm. And um, I don't know if you can recall the London Olympics at that point and what you were doing, Hannah. Can you can you? I was watching the point? opening ceremony on the TV. I remember watching that. And uh, I used to live in Milton Keynes at the time and the Olympic torch passed through Milton Keynes, which was quite a spectacle because that's as close as I'm ever going to get to an Olympic torch. Well, I was lucky enough to be a torchbearer in 2012. Wow. And, I, and I, I loved it when this date came up for you because uh, we're going to delve into this a bit more. But, you know, at that time, um, Cy, from, um, who um, had the gang, Gangnam Style song, he uh, launched onto the stage with that crazy song that is still around today. Um, and um, there were 7 billion people on the planet in 2012. 
So, um, as I say, at home we were we were getting into the London Olympics, and that brought um, a community aspect to it, which is very similar to some of the things we're seeing today. And we get to that a bit later. But 2012, you know, particularly was um, a proud moment for um, you know the whole nation to just get behind and really show the world. Um, you know what the United Kingdom was all about and um, you know lots of people have got great memories from that time now for you in particular I've been uh, uh, looking at uh, what you were up to and I can see that you were smiling which is great I don't know if it's a nervous smile I'm thinking <laughs> what is it because I was kind of busy in 2012 you were really busy in 2012 yeah. now you experienced your first MOOC the first massive um, mm. open online course so tell us about that what did that feel like yeah I um it was an odd experience actually because it was really seen as the year of the MOOC and um I did my first MOOC for uh it was a CMOOC so it was a connectivist MOOC it was content was all over the the web it was a Stephen Downs MOOC and um I remember really, really vividly going to a hen party in Nottinghamshire and I was doing the MOOC on the coach on the WEGS at the time I didn't drive. And I was doing it on my iPad with a MiFi, uh, <laughs> Wi-Fi connection, because back then iPads didn't really have 4G. And, uh, and I remember studying it as I went and it, it really changed my thinking in user-centered learning. And I was working at the time on a platform for the Open University called Social Learn, which was a, a creation, curation, learning pathway platform that built into collections. And I came up with this idea that through a thought experiment is how it actually started with uh, Simon Buckingham Shum, who now works in Australia. And I came up with this idea of how we could aggregate MOOC learning, because back then there were no XMOOCs, there were no, you go to a platform and do it. Um, there was content around open learn had been around for years before then but in a in a MOOC kind of styling is the best way I can describe it CMOOCs were all over the place and I think professors had far too much expectation on the digital literacy skills of their learners and I was trying to find a way to catalog it all together using algorithms and RSS feeds and because I, I was really struggling with the grasshopper rss feed that stephen downs was using for this connectivist mooc and it was change 12 is what it was called and hashtag obviously uh back in the day when we use hashtags and everything and um and some days my tweets would come up about the mooc and some days they wouldn't and what i actually noticed was in the in the grasshopper rss feed is the days that i didn't tweet it as intelligently as I could have done with the days it came up and the days where I said something deeply profound it didn't and uh, that really annoyed me um, and so I started coming up with this thought experiment that I could run through social learn and then my uh, colleague Simon Buckingham Shum said well, why don't you just do a doctorate and I thought he was insane um, and I thought okay I'll, I'll I'll give it a go. I wrote a doctorate proposal and the first year it was declined because they couldn't find me a supervisor because the field was so new. And then the next year, everyone's like, why, why aren't you putting in back in for your proposal? And I was like, mm, OK, I put it back in thinking I wouldn't get in. And I, and I got in and I got two fantastic supervisors and I, 
I did my doctorate in the largest single source data set of MOOC data of its kind. So it was a real changing moment for me. And I was particularly struck by something you said in um, stuff that you've published yourself or mm. I've seen published about you was this area of, you know, consumer grade experiences and them being very different to formal learning. Mm. And as you say, this is the largest study of its kind. Yeah. And had a profound effect. Now, my, my question for you before we take some of this into, into the present, because this was, you know, a, a, a real pivot point in the field of MOOCs. Um, as you've said, there wasn't these studies before. This was something that was going to transform things as we move forward. But, you know, looking back at your work life at that point, obviously it had a huge effect on you, but it's been eight years since that point. Mm. But what advice would you give your less experienced self, you know, having come forward eight years? It's the, it's the same advice I give to everybody um, who's considering doing a doctorate. Um, I was asked two years ago, I think it was, to go back to the Open University and present to the year three students. And I actually did my presentation based on song titles by the Beatles. Anyone who comes to my presentations must understand they're not standard lots of words on uh, PowerPoint. There was some kind of lateral thinking theme. But the one thing that is so important about a doctorate is never get precious about it. Because yes, it is absolutely 110% your baby. And you will blood, sweat and tears over that thing. But... The content changes depending on the research and the data and the outcomes and, and, and new questions emerge that I just didn't see coming. Uh, and I'd been building MOOCs. By the time I finished my doctorate, I'd built over 100 MOOCs by that point wow. for the Open University and since gone on to do another 200 for another company. Um, so apparently I also hold the record for most amount of MOOCs ever made by a single person. I, I would love to know when I'm going to get my medal for this one. Um, but it's don't get precious. I mean, my, <laughs> my idea, my proposal, if you look at my proposal and you look at my thesis, they are very different. Yet I would not change a single thing inside my thesis so, because so it came from the data. So what I'm hearing you say, you know, you, you know, as we move forward to the present, it's this ability to be flexible and in the moment and really, you know, just go with it you know Absolutely. I, I, I really love that and and you and I've had quite a few conversations about that is that there are things to let go of so the purpose and intent were absolutely bang on but they had to change as, mm. you, as you were going deep yeah. into the study and more things were revealing themselves it's the bug of evidence-based practice basically yeah incredible it really is and in the three years that the, my doctorate took place over i was working full-time at the same time um at the open university creating MOOCs, and i was seeing the data firsthand and over that three years MOOCs changed so enormously that the data moved so fast that there was no way i could have done what I thought I was going to do, because that would have been considered unacceptable in modern day times of 2015. Um, so, so it changed. It changed. And the thing is, is just not to get hung up on, but this was my doctorate and this was my idea and just go, oh, I found a new gap in knowledge that I didn't see before that is relevant now. Um, and that to me was more important than holding on to an, an ideal of a doctorate proposal. Because it's about making a better learning experience, you know. 
No, absolutely, Hannah. And I, um, you know, I want to bring us, let's set the clock on our time machine up to 2020. So um, we're in 2020, you know, you are... We have to be. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know, I know, um, but I'm in the control seat, so we're going to 2020, (laughs) right? Um, And uh, it is, it is bumpy, isn't it? My goodness, Mm. it's bumpy, right? But um, you are a doctor. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Incredible incredible mm. and um you obviously um do have the award for the most amount of MOOCs as well i'm going to contact the guinness book of records <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know bending balloons has got to change i think it's, got, it's got, got to move got on got yeah to, got to got to go in there so um you know one of the things i'd like to pick up on apart from you know the academic study that you have done which has has transformed MOOCs and all of that side of things is also that you um have been helping some very interesting organizations transform you know what they're doing mm. and in addition to that you also have been working with the giant of McKinsey so tell us a bit about that as we landed in 2020. Yeah so I work for all sorts of different people um, I work for several people freelance in giving advice as to where I think learning is going, the direction it's moving in, um, what platforms are hot, what or not, um, and seeing and picking up on learner behavior to predict where we're going to go next. Um, so I've been doing McKinsey quarterly stuff for, oh God, a really long time now, <laughs> she says, long time, it's been over a decade. Um, but I've also worked with a number of different organizations, either with the Open University, because I used to work for their commercial arm, so we would create platforms of content for third parties. Um, so for example, uh, Charter Institute for Accountants, um, the government, uh, EON, EDF, worked with NASA, I've uh, worked with Google, Apple, Amazon, iTunes, you know, so I've worked with lots of big well-known companies in that respect. But for the last two years until the recent um, pandemic, I spent two years with a company called Solera Holdings, which is a company that no one's ever heard of. It's one of those ninja companies that uh, use their stuff, but you don't realize it. And they're a car insurance software development company, which as you can imagine right now, with no cars on the road, they're all um, quietly all sitting at home. Um, And I built for them a business school that was utilized in 93 countries that they operated 37 companies in. And I was invited in on the basis of that they had no L&D and they needed something. And whilst that seems unwieldy, for someone like me, you know, to go in and create something without a legacy, you know, there's no legacy system, there's no legacy person, there's no, this is the way we've always done it, there was nothing. And you get to take everything that you've learned along the way and put it all in, into this massive, like, bubbling pot and see what happens. And the data was fantastic. From an academic point of view, it was absolutely fantastic to look at, to work with, to to engineer different learning experiences from. And I really enjoyed doing that for the two years that I worked for them. Um, and it and it taught me a lot at the same time. You know, certain things I took for granted um, in the world of learning taxonomies that you just I just didn't see in that company due to the culture of the company. And so culture plays a massive part in the learning experience, which is why when I was at OEB 18, I was uh, keynoting there and I was saying, 
how when you're looking at learning experience for your company, it's so easy to go, oh, Vodafone are doing this or the NHS are doing, I should do that too. And that works for them, you know, and it's about what finding what works for you. And that's where the learning experience really takes off. So I actually found that time very enjoyable, actually. Um, so a lot of airports, though, at 3 a.m., that part was not as enjoyable. But the, the getting to work with people in a different way, I found it was exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting. And I'd love to pick, on, pick up on this learning culture thing. And, mm. you know, coming back to these consumer-grade experiences. And as you and I know, that that is not what people are usually um, experiencing. No. Now, in this climate, you know, that we're in and... Um, you know, because I'm in the driving seat, we've landed on 2020. And I know we should drive by, but we are going <laughs> to stop, right? We are going to yeah. stop. And we're going to get out. And this, oh, you're brave. <laughs> <laughs> this climate is rocky, right? It's yeah. climate is rocky. And um, we're not really sure where we've landed. We think it's Earth, but you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. And you know, what are you observing, Hannah? Mm. And you know, what impacts you know, how do you think those observations are impacting, you know, people's lives? It is a really interesting time now. And I am I am sitting more in a passenger seat, not only of your time machine, but also a passenger seat <laughs> at present. Because I've been working in online and blended for 15 years by the time this pandemic happened. And the five years before that was purely face to face. And I've seen L&D professionals on LinkedIn, especially, you can see the panic was rising as, as the pandemic was moving across the world. And we were about to go into lockdown that, that people that were so used to a face to face existence were like, oh, how do we do this online? And then there was a sudden rise in the use of SharePoint and Zoom. And, and like, that's the answer. And I've seen a lot of PowerPoint slides going up on SharePoint and it being called online learning, which is an insult to my craft. <laughs> but, you know, it is, that is not online learning. It is some learning stuff put online. They're two very different things. And, and online learning is a science. It's a craft. It's a, it's a way to build. I mean, you can't build IKEA furniture without instructions, believe me, even if they're pictorial. You can't just put it together and hope for the best. And, and that's what's happened is a stopgap sticking plaster whilst we're trying to work out how long is this going to go on for? And clearly this 2020 is going to go on for quite some time. And and people are going, now what? And, and people are struggling at home. They're struggling at home in their environments because they've never had, it's not just training or um, I've got to sit at my dressing table for the whole day or the dining table or the kitchen table. It's the mental state that comes with this environment. And I've worked from home for two years when I haven't been commuting. So I am used to being in my house. I'm used to learning how not to snack. Um, and... And for them, they're really struggling. And I'm struggling to see as a result, where's the pastoral care in this for L&D? You know, we create so many courses in L&D about empowering staff and, and having transformational leaders and having teams that can work together in matrix structures. Well, we're in this very weird matrix structure right now. And I don't see the pastoral care. It's not enough to go, you're right, in this. They need not courses about managing stress they need courses to understand or content to understand how do I get through day by day to stop the stress on building because then I don't have to manage it 
you know, managing stress is an end symptom. It's how do we stop it from the start? And and the longer this goes on, and it's going to go on for quite some time, even with potentially returning to work, and but we won't be sitting next to each other, and we could be working shifts and different days at home and different days in the office, and goodness knows how it's all going to work. And then the question then comes, what next? Because you can't go back to a face-to-face existence in training. So do they do a blended option? How do you blend something you've put on SharePoint? And so for me right now, it's a really good time for L&D people to really start to learn the craft of learning design and learning experience and put themselves in the sort of learner seat. Because a lot of L&D people don't naturally attempt the stuff that they're actually making. They write it, they build it, they put it up there. They very, very rarely sit there and attempt to then study it themselves. That to me is always the litmus test of my own work. Um, I always do two things. I pass it to somebody who knows what I'm talking about. After I've looked at it, wood for the trees can never always see little errors that I've made, you know, typo or I haven't explained something quite right. So I give it to somebody who knows what they're talking about check check the knowledge is good and then i give it to somebody who hasn't got a scooby-doo and the question is if they've actually learned something from it i'm doing something right so huge opportunity hannah a huge absolutely massive i mean we take it i mean this is the thing so you, you know you and i have landed on 2020 and what we're seeing is that you know um the rapid response that's coming from l and d is um let's just you know spray and pray as I call it. Yes, very much And we're so. spraying praying by taking anything that was offline and putting it online and just mm-hmm. going, well, let's, let's spray and pray. Yeah. And, you know, I believe what you're saying is that, you know, let's come back to those consumer-grade experiences. Mm-hmm. Let's think about adaptive learning. I mean, these are things that you are incredibly passionate about and have yes. immense experience over and absolutely sit in the shoes of mm-hmm. what I call the consumer learner. Yeah. So how people are consuming this stuff? How do we make it mm. easier for people? How do we make it, um, you know, so it so it sticks? How do we get them to be self determined? Yes, you know, this hutagogical experience of absolutely yeah. absorbing themselves. And you know, I love this um, this revolution that you're putting on the table now. For mm. me, Hannah, what you're saying is. This is about disrupting the norm. And this is something mm. that you have done for a long time. I love time, doing it. Right? It's my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is disrupting the norm. So you and I are going to get back in that time machine, right? Okay. We're going to get back in that time machine. And you and I have seen, and we've put a message on the table that, that, that we got, there's a revolution that needs to be here. Because otherwise for L&D, you know, extinction may be on the cards, mm. right? We've got that photograph eroding of L&D and it's a real pivot point right so let's get back onto our uh, time machine and let's set the clock for 2030 and in the context of you Mm. as someone is really disrupting the norm because that's what you have done and that's what you continue to do Hannah and we absolutely need you as part of the group Mm. Um, you know one of the things that I want to talk to you about is you know what are your hopes and dreams and predictions you know I'm going to take us to 2030 that's only 10 years away it's not that long right so we we're going to be allowed outside by then well, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, we may be allowed outside we're going to look younger we're going to be flying oh, yes. around with backpacks on our back you know if you if you um you know 
believe the the hype and predictions and people that are looking into this stuff so mm. the mckinsey's the pwc's the deloitte's that have been doing a number of studies on this period of time and i am going to put another prediction on the table is this pandemic is accelerating mm. that anyway mm. and they're predicting that there's going to be a lot less people in permanent jobs yes we're going to have much more of an agility about the workforce the mm -hmm. power continues to come from the grassroots of the workforce so as you call it the, the you know getting that push and pull balance and mm. completely flipping that at the moment yes. we've got you know 80 percent push and 20 percent pull mm. and you're saying let's disrupt that norm and we need to and it's happening anyway and fl completely flip it 100 so yeah tell me about your hopes and dreams you and i are in 2030 what does it look like hannah come on come on so i believe in this um phenomenon and uh, that i really should write something about one day um i've presented on it is called what i call socialist lnd the belief of grassroots LD. So in Solera, it was something I heavily instigated. Yes, we need LD came from the top, but I worked so hard with the people at the bottom of the company to go, well, what is it that you want? I think we have to throw away every single catalog going of courses because um, it's very easy to go, oh, here's an LMS catalog curriculum, whatever we want to call it. We should have all these courses now. HR compliance always important. I'm never going to doubt that for a second. However, there are certain types of learning that are imperative for your company, and there's certain types of learning that are superfluous for your company. And and it's about you as an L and D person knowing that. And one of the things that I talk about the most and present on the most is our position in society as L and D people. L and D people are so ridiculously lovely. It's insane. I mean, if they were a British manners sort of book, that would just be full of L&D people. They are the loveliest people in the world. And that's a small problem for the survival of L&D. Because we as L&D people don't naturally always have a seat at the top table. We as L&D people, and I've uh, asked the question many times in presentations around the world, how many of you access your company's five-year strategy every single year? How many of you have sat there and gone, my boss wants this vision by 2025, 2030. How am I, me, L&D, going to get that for him or her? Let's be hopeful that in 2030, there's much more female CEOs in this world. So we don't do that. We wait. We're very, very passive, reactive people. We need to be active people. We need to be much more on the front line, planning to a much higher degree, going in and talking to those managers that you know have got an issue, or you know have got troubled teams, or you know have been set a massive target, and they're going, oh, how are we going to do this? That's our job. That's our job. It is not to go, here's how we do presentations. It's how the hell do we write great presentations that our clients want to hear? You know, and we've got to work out our place at that top table and we have to shoehorn our way into it. It is not naturally given to us. I had to fight my way into it with Solera. L&D is always seen as a nice to have, we're a need to have, especially now, more than ever, where companies that we thought were safe in this world are no longer safe, where there are companies filing for administration right now we weren't expecting, where those companies asking for furlough that we weren't expecting. And we've got to go, okay, 
how do we L&D people change this? Because and, good and L&D can really make a company, especially now. And Hala, just tell me why you think that, I mean, obviously we can take an awful lot of responsibility ourselves. Mm. And I totally agree with you. But it's not just us, is it? Why is no. L&D seen as a nice to have rather than imperative? A need to have. It's because traditionally L&D happened down a corridor in a room that you went to a couple of times a year because you had a chat with your boss once a year during your appraisal. And it's right down at the bottom personal development. Personal development's never at the top of an appraisal. Is rule number one broken? It's terrible. You've got to do all these things. Oh, and by the way, your personal development. How about here's your personal development for the year so you can do all these things? It's completely the wrong way around. So we're always seen as this down the corridor. Many people don't physically see us until they have training. We need to be omnipresent. With Solera, I work really hard to make that happen, get ambassadors. Um, not just me. I ran the business school, but I had lots of ambassadors, lots of cheerleaders from all different areas that I've gone, I can help you. And then I've got case studies as to how I've helped them. So, and then that buys in more manager buy-in you know, this L&D was really important. It's not just sales course training. She's actually helping us to create double-digit growth, which is what we've actually been tasked with. You need to understand the objectives of the company that you work for because everything now in 2030, if all predictions are true, is going to be much more turbulent. We are going to be more uncontracted. We're going to be moving a lot more. That means that there's a hell of a lot more skills gaps now coming out, more and more and more and more. Right now, there's massive skills gaps in soft skills, in AI, in machine learning. They always talk about automation and chatbots, for example, taking over the world. So then we're left with a workforce that they've got more people than we've got jobs, and there's still skills gaps in those jobs. And it's moving constantly. Every single year, that five-year strategy so we, is changing a lot quicker. Step up. We've got to step up this specialism. Absolutely. This stuff is not going to happen on its own. Now, I want to pick no. up another point um, with you because, you know, in 2030, you are already an incredibly successful woman. Right? I've, made incredibly it. Successful I've made it through person. the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking to me. And you're talking to me. I mean, what else could you want, right? Living the dream right there and then, right? I am. We're, we're, I am. In, our, we're in our time machine. But you're already successful. But you and I know that, you know, the, the, the challenges for women in, in, in work lives have, I mean, you know, these have been going yeah. on for, for a long time. These are not new mm. things. But no. by 2030, you know, what advice can you give to women today in order mm. that by the time we get to 2030, we have made some headway yeah. into these challenges of not being seen in the same mm. light, whether that's pay, job opportunities, the impact we're making, the recognition we're getting, Look, Hannah, you are disrupting that as we speak. What advice can you give to other women? My best advice is don't politely wait. This world doesn't change itself by us sitting and forming a nice queue and going, I'm sure it will happen one day. The wage gap doesn't close by itself. The us women in STEM doesn't happen by accident. Women pulling positions in power doesn't happen by accident. It is not our time will come. Our time is now. Our time was yesterday. Our time was a century ago. And it's always been our time. And we have to make sure that we are there, that we're being seen, that we're being heard, that we're using the right phrases at the right point. I mean, I've been in so many boardrooms in my time where I've said something and then a man has said something 
that sounds a hell of a lot like what I've just sent and everybody else has just nodded their head. And I go, thank you ever so much for clarifying that point for me that I have made. You know, like you've just got to go, no, that is mine. I am taking it back. Don't sit there politely and go, I'm sure my boss will see my worth one day because they're not going to unless you're going, yes, thank you ever so much for adding to my point, for bringing it forward into the meeting, for repeating it for the people in the room that hadn't heard before. Whatever it is, say it politely. But we have to be doing this. We have to be saying, no, I am important. And there's a lot of self-confidence that goes with that. I am naturally an extrovert. I am naturally one of those people that will just put my two pennies worth in, um, largely because I've realized I'm not going to get anywhere without it. And so I've always stuck my neck on the block. And sometimes it's worked well. Sometimes it hasn't. I've learned from the ones that haven't worked so well, but I'm prepared to do that. And that's how I've been seen, so to speak, over the years and disrupted things because I've gone, do you know what? I'm going to give that a go and I'm going to make it work because I know I can make it work based on my knowledge and my experience and my confidence in myself. And whenever I talk to women's groups, they always ask me how I've done it, how I've done it, how I've done it. Did you fake it till you made it? And I'm like, no, I've never faked anything in my life. Um, I've never gone, oh, yeah, absolutely, I can do that. If I don't believe I can, I face it. I say, yes, I'll do that for you. I will then work out how sometimes afterwards, but I know I can do it. You know, it's not, there's nothing unachievable left in this world. Nobody stood at the bottom of Mount Everest and went, oh, that's a big hill, isn't it? I won't bother today. They went, okay, how do I set about climbing it? No one looked at the moon and went, oh, that's a bit far away. They set about how the hell do we get to the moon? It's the same with L&D. How the hell do we get what we need out of L&D? I love and it. And we Hannah. set about great, doing it. It's a great message. And um, <clears throat> I... Um, Hannah, I love that message. Um, and women really need to listen to this. We've all mm. got to play our part, haven't we? Yeah. And, you know, this sort of socialising l and I mean, we've got to, um, you know, as women, club together and, and mm. together and disrupt it together because we've seen that work in the past as well. Now, mm. the great thing is, right, you are going to have the power now, right? So you are in the driving seat of our time machine. We're getting back in. And um, this is great because we've been all the way from 2012 to 2030. Mm. But my question for you is, where do you want to go now? Do you want to go back? Do you want to get, stay in the present or do you want to go forward? Where is it you want to yeah. go? <laughs> for me, for me, 2021. Wonderful. Because the reason why, and it's not far away, it feels like it's a lifetime away right now. Um, I need to know how this world is panning out and how we're fitting into it to build the future. Because, I mean, you could look at 2050, but it depends on the seeds that we plant in 2021 to how 2050 is going to look like. Anyone who's watched Back to the Future knows that if you mess with something in the past, it has ramifications later on. And, and so I need to know, did we go back to business as usual? Or did the optimists, because I am 50-50, I'm firmly on the fence on this one, or did we go, let's change the world today? You know, who changed the world and how did it change us? Not just in flip classrooms or disruptive innovation. And to me, disruptive innovation is only disruptive when it's every day. So it's not disruptive. Uh, the iPods was not disruptive when the 
fanboys were out there in the queue at 3 a.m. buying the first ever one. That is not disruptive. It's when we can't live our lives without streaming music. That's disruptive. So I want to know what iPod seeds are we having now that is going to make it that in 2030, 2050, that this seems so normal, therefore has disrupted innovation, that whatever we did in the past made perfect sense. And, and for designing, for bringing forward L&D, for bringing forward women, you know, we don't, I don't need a male savior. I need a male ally, but I don't need a savior. I can do this myself. And that plants seeds for later on, um, for working with women, for pushing forward my career, whatever it may be. My designs that I look at now, the way that I look at data now affects me in the future. So a year from now, this world could either look identical, uh, but we're a little bit more obsessed with washing our hands than we used to be, or it could look radically different. So I want to know what 2021 looks like to know, was it all worth it? Was all of this that we're putting ourselves through right now, what feels like a boot camp experience, worth it? And that's what I want to know. And Hannah, as a disruptor, as someone who's disrupting the norm, what commitment have you made to yourself and how will you know when you've achieved it? I, I was asked this question, actually, um, in a presentation in Germany. And I said, the moment happened for me in Solera. I had a very beautiful moment um, where I thought, yeah, I've made a difference in this world. And it wasn't data on the screen or anything like that. It was when um, my VP that I was working for, and bearing in mind, I came into a company that had no L&D, and then I just threw at it everything that is cutting edge in the world of L&D, not just in L&D, but also in HE academia from you know, little papers that I'd read based on, you know, classroom with 10 people. I was trying everything going to see what worked for Solera. But it was the moment where my VP could explain blended pedagogy and flipped classroom experience to a boardroom where three months prior, she had no concept of what it was that I was talking about when they were uh, inviting me to come work for them. And I thought, now I've made a difference to this world. Because not only can she explain it, beautifully and accurately she paid attention could see the benefit and then wanted to share that benefit with everybody else and at that moment I got proper warm fuzzies which if you work in a 75 percent 80 percent male company you don't you have to hold back the warm fuzzies sometimes but I felt really proud I was like, yes, I've made a difference. When I've had members of staff in their feedback, in their surveys and their interviews that I did with them afterwards say, That's, that learning's really made a difference. I was better with the client. I feel more confident. I've learned new skills. I've shown my boss my worth. That to me was enormously important in this socialist L&D movement because most of the time, our bosses don't see how good we are. They know we've achieved our objectives because they ask us once a quarter, once a year, and we go, yep, yep, did that, boss, yep. But they don't ever see our outputs. Not really. You don't, you don't go and see how someone's presented at a conference because you're not at that conference. You don't see how they're working with a client to close a contract because you're not in that meeting. You're not seeing them deal with a really difficult customer on the end of a line because you haven't heard the recording. You're not walking around the room when it's happening. So all this unknown 
output of L&D happens every single day, especially now where our bosses physically can't see us. Um, and it goes all unwarranted. But in Solera, I made the managers the checkpoint approvers so they could see their staff, they could see their staff's worth. And that empowers teams. And I didn't have to do it through an empowerment course. So it's continuing that for you. And it's really continuing and yeah. you, the measure of it is hearing other people yeah. talk the language because when you hear that you know they've got it and you know that the learner are, experience is they, right they, they've caught the bug yeah they've caught the bug if you like yeah. now I've got one last question for you because you do so many things and you give your time um in all sorts of places but I would like to hear um you know one thing that may that people may not know about you which may come as a surprise for them what could mm. you share? Um, oh, God, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things <laughs> I could share. <laughs> um, probably the one that made my thesis panel smile, bearing in mind they had to read 55,000 words on MOOCs, um, is my thesis dedication, the reason why I push myself morning, noon, and night. Um, my thesis is dedicated to my late father. So it says, uh, this thesis is dedicated to my late father. Who taught me that I could achieve anything if I worked hard enough for it, and to my dog who's impatiently waited for me to finish. And that pretty much sums up my life. I spend all my time pushing because he taught me you can do it. If you believe in yourself enough, you can do it. If you think you can do it, go ahead and do it. And he's always he always had that mentality. And then um my dog is always sitting around going, You're going for a walk yet? And but what I I think have that helped me do is help inspire other people to become the better versions of themselves you know it's not to me about courses or anything like that it's about being the better version of themselves and one of the things I like to do is ultra marathons because um I haven't got enough crazy things in my life and one of my friends it was his 50th birthday last August and he was like, every single year I told myself I'm going to run a marathon and now I'm, you know, overweight and I'm 50 years old and it's impossible to get into London and all this kind of thing. And I was like, oh, you should really do an ultra. Like, why bother with a marathon when you can do an ultra? Like, you know, why bother with 100 steps when you can do 150? Um, and he did an ultra marathon on the 12th of September and he has depression and it has changed his mindset so much for believing for decades, every single year, I'm not going to achieve the one thing I wanted when I was 20. And for 30 years, I told myself I couldn't do it, whilst also wishing I could. Um, and then to be able to do it and then do it to such a degree that it puts me into the 1% population of the entire planet that's done an ultramarathon. I'm an elite athlete now. So he calls himself an elite athlete, which I absolutely love. And it's changed his mindset completely, you know. And for me, it, it ekes out into every part of my living being to help people be the better versions of themselves. So if you're in a conversation with me ever and you say, oh, do you know what, Hannah? I really love to jump out of an airplane. You'll probably find me and you a couple of weeks later in a field with uh, parachutes on our back, ready to board a plane. I'm just that kind of person. Um, but I think everyone should realise their best potential. And that's my thing, really, that I would say. And that comes in many guises. Uh, so do be careful what you say to me over a glass of wine, because you'll find yourself doing it by the end of the year. Anna, that is what a great way to end our conversation. 
Thank you so much for sharing your incredible work-life story with us. I mean, that we know there is so much more to come. My goodness, um, you really. Apparently, I should be writing my memoirs whilst I'm sitting indoors. <laughs> you, you, you absolutely should be doing this. You are. You are absolutely doing that, and I know you're going to inspire people to disrupt the norm as well. Thank you so much, Hannah. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed the People Who Know Work Life podcast. If you want to listen to more incredible stories, why not subscribe to the podcast series today? Thank you.